From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up in today's show, Dr. Bunny Huang joins us to talk about his book, The Hardware Hacker. So stay tuned for all this here on the Grok Science Show. back to the program. Well, joining us today is our special guest, Andrew Bunny Huang, an advocate of the open source movement. He's been the author of Hacking the Xbox and has been involved in several ventures, including Novena and Chibitronics. Uh, today he joins us to talk about his new book, The Hardware Hacker, Adventures in Making and Breaking Hardware. Uh, Bunny, thank you so much for joining us here on Grox today. Oh yeah, the hardware hacker. Um, so that's actually uh, I, I credit No Search Press for kind of coming up with the idea and and really pushing it through. No Search Press is the publisher, and Bill Pollock is a great guy. The story goes actually all the way back to hacking the Xbox days. My original publisher wouldn't uh, pub- publish that book because they thought it was too controversial. And uh, Bill, you know, sort of picked it up and said, you know, hey, I'm I'm the final decision maker at No Starch. I don't care what the lawyers say. I'm I'll go ahead and carry your book, right? And so. Since then, him and I have been in touch, and he had been sort of batting back and forth the idea with me of maybe doing a compilation of some of my writings and add, you know edit up and add some some material to it. And uh, I've always been like, ah, oh, no, like it's not good enough, whatever it is. And then and then um, he tossed me a table of contents, and we kind of assembled together a bunch of material that I that I had, and and it came out to a few hundred pages. I was like, okay, well, I guess that's a book. And so then we a lot of it was about shaping it into you know a cohesive arc and um, editing it for readability and and adding a lot of material that was missing uh, previously updating stuff and so you know that's sort of the arc of the hardware hacker sort of takes you through several aspects of, of hardware hacking so from the making side to the breaking side to the legal side to pondering about the future and and extensions to biology and and the, the idea that I wanted to put into the book was I wanted to sort of show that hardware hacking isn't just like a, a one faceted uh, a single faceted activity you have to think with kind of you know, your whole brain and consider all the angles and being involved in both the design side and the undesigned side um, is a really important interplay in terms of being successful at both actually both at design and undesigned. And what do you see as some of the most exciting things going on in the open source movement today? Um, I'm pretty excited about um, the new open source chips coming out. So, you know, up until now, pretty much every chip has been totally closed source. Like, you can't even begin to... You couldn't even get a picture of the chip from half the vendors or, you know, the what they call the, the bond pad arrangement. So if you want to know where where the different wires from the outside landed into the chip, that would be like an NDA thing. And so um, so these guys are now working, and a couple of teams actually working on building uh, an open source RTL. RTL is the Registered Transfer Language, which is the what they call source, you know, the, the textual source code for a chip, a digital chip at least. And they're open sourcing that sort of 
compilable source code for the chips, the CPU core, and a large number of peripherals. And um, kind of, you know, some of them are already taped out, and you can buy some of the boards already. Some of them are in the in the, in the planning stages, um, and the roadmaps look really phenomenal. So I'm pretty excited that that um, open source is finally making a real foray into into the silicon world. And what do you see as the role of uh, open source? Is it just a movement for the hobbyists, or is commercialization one of the end goals? Oh yeah, I mean it, it's both. I mean, there's so many different prongs to the open source. Um, why open source and why it's important in chips? Um, the uh, obvious there's the the education and and hobby angles uh, an obvious one, uh, right? Um, but uh, there's Certainly, a commercial aspect and a security aspect to it. So that you know, there's there's people who uh, you know, if you want, it, you know, hardware hackers in particular have a have a set of pretty favorite um, exploits that we like to use against different t- types of hardware, and and a lot of it relies upon the difficulty of analyzing the hardware systems because no one has source to it. Actually, having a full open source chip, it, I think, would aid with analysis of things like, you know, uh, register aliasing and uh, unintentional um, addresses that are, that are mapped that you didn't mean to map them. That you can go ahead and cause um, problems to happen inside the chip. And then there's the, from the commercial aspect, <clears throat> there's some very important uh, outcomes of open source. One one other thing is that um, people don't realize this, but one of the major costs of making a chip today is the IP licenses. Um, part of the reason people don't do more custom chips is not just because the silicon foundry is really expensive. Um, buying rights to the CPU core and the USB stack and the PCI Express bus, the DDR memory, all that sort of stuff. Like, it's like in, in very capital intensive. And um, open sourcing the IP helps reduce the barrier for people to build exactly the right chip that they want instead of having to buy you know, search digit key for the almost perfect microcontroller that is missing that one I squared C bus that you really, really need and then having to upgrade to a really more expensive chip you can go ahead and consider now uh, at a much lower price, potentially um, fabbing your own chips uh, thanks to the rise of the open source IP ecosystem. And how does this relate to, say, the uh, major commercial chip makers? Uh, You know, what do you see as their uh, appropriate role? Do they compete with open source or are they... Complementary. I mean, so to be clear, the chip IP ecosystem has several layers to it. There's the guys who run the actual foundry. Those guys are IP neutral, I guess, by and large. As long as you use their, what they call the, the PDK, the physical design kit, which only really specifies things like transistors, very, very, very highly process optimized layouts like uh, RAM memories or like you know, e-fuses, those sorts of things. Uh, they don't care what goes on on the chip, right? And those guys, they just want to sell more volume. If you if you make an open source, you know, chip and 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 what is you're still paying for the masks, you're still paying for the silicon, their foundry's still full, they're happy. So those guys are, you know, I think they have a, a really good alignment with um, open sourcing um, at the RTL level. They're not well aligned with open sourcing at the silicon level, obviously, because that's their business. Um, the guys who, you know, probably would. Get the most heartache are the you know the pure IP play vendors and you know you never hear these names in the household. They're you know they're the people who build you know the peripheral cores and the you know the the switching fabrics and all the things inside the chip that people never ever get to see. And um, you know I I think a little shaken up of that that the industry is probably overdue. 
um, <laughs> honestly. Um, there's, you know, the, the, the IP, you know, a lot of IP stacks um, have problems in them that you'd like to see fixed, but they don't fix because there's no competition. There's non-optimalities. There's a lot of room for improvement um, in that space. And um, I'm actually, you know, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic that, that adding a little competition and a little, you know, open source in that range um, can help make products better for everybody in the world. And when you look back the last couple of decades, uh, are there examples of where the open source movement was able to solve a problem that the commercial companies did not or were not able to? I mean, there's, there's tons of examples in the software world. I mean, like Linux is kind of, you know, the obvious example. I mean, every, you know, you know Android phone it runs a you know a kernel that's based on Linux. It's a derivative of it, and then there's tons of servers. You know, you know the whole internet basically runs on this stuff. All of the down to the white goods that you get, the you know the sort of the generic router boxes and stuff. Those almost always have Linux on them. People, I mean, people now Linux is just so common that I was I was doing <clears throat> this presentation the other day where they were doing some relatively low end you know, protocol processing thing um, in an embedded CPU, and they just threw a full Linux in because. You know they can do that because of Moore's law today, and it's easy and it's reliable, and and um, you know they solved a lot of problems. Uh, so that's like one easy example. Um, and there's a there's a whole range of things in between that in, in the software world that you know open source. I mean the whole internet basically comes from an open uh, standards process. Um, you know, from the hardware world, there hasn't been you know it's trailed a bit on the. Um, in terms of the software side, and I actually have written some articles about you know my theory for why this is the case. A lot of it has to do with Moore's law and the trouble of keeping up with the pace of it. But now that Moore's law has kind of slowed down a little bit, um, you, you know, there's sort of like you know this, this rise of the open RTL um, chips is is another indicator of that. You know, hey, things have finally reached a point where people can, in an open fashion, develop tools that target a process node and be able to get a community together and build things and, and create something of, of lasting value um, in the ecosystem because things have slowed down sufficiently. And so, I, you know, I think, I think that the, you know, gonna, you know the, the sort of the chapters for what open source hardware will do are just starting to be written um, today. So with regards to Moore's Law, uh, you mentioned some of the limitations we're now facing. Um, could you explain a little bit more how that helps hardware development? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it used to be the case that if you wanted to innovate in hardware and you said, hey, you know, we could engage in a three-year project and we can double the performance of the system, people would be like, why, why even bother? Just sit for 18 months and they'll come to you for free. You know, the foundries of Intel and, and all the big guys would just Put out CPU is twice as fast. We'll just throw it in there, recompile the code, and move ahead, right? And so there's there's you know a whole range of people who are doing explorations in architecture, parallelism, and, and networks and topologies and all this sorts of stuff. We're just like you know like we can't we can't compete with the rate at which people can just make transistors faster today. And you know in, if you look at things particularly from the open source domain, you know a lot of it's done because it's you know there's not a lot of upfront money in it. A lot of it's done in people's spare time. It's not a one priority. You don't have multiple teams of people working on it. And so it tends to take a couple of years even for any open source project to really start to take hold in the community and then spread virally and 
and really you know, get deep roots. And so by the time any open source project, particularly focused on performance computing, would take, take hold, it's out of date, right? There's, there's no chance that it could survive. You know, un, you know, in contrast, like, you know, a project like Arduino, which sort of its stated goal wasn't performance, but it's more about accessibility and usability. That one, and you know, they just picked a kind of an oldish microprocessor and really worked on, like, the user experience and the, the community. And they, they managed to bring a lot of people into hardware by creating, a, you know, a very accessible gateway um, to, to the project. But now that, you know, we're sort of seeing the process nodes really kind of slow down a bit. And, and, the, and the difference in performance that you get between every process node isn't as dramatic as it was before either. People are starting to say, okay, you know, you know, 40 nanometer, 28 nanometer, those are pretty comfortable nodes. They're, you know, they're getting cheaper and, you know, still top, top-notch products can be built in these. They're not out of date the day that they ship. And so uh, people are kind of settling into these process nodes and you know, doing a more detailed, you know, open source style exploration of the, the possibilities and capabilities of them. In your book, uh, you also describe China's open source movement and how it differs from uh, what we in the West perceive as open source. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little? That's an interesting problem <laughs> that, I, that, I, that I, you know, I, I encountered for the first time when I went to China like a decade ago. And you could see evidence of, of a different way of thinking everywhere, but it was just bewildering. You know, it just kind of looked like people sticking random trademarks on things and people stealing other people's designs and whatnot. And um, over the past several years, I've been trying to figure out why why does this phenomenon work and why does it even sustain? Because it you know breaks a lot of the assumptions that you have built in IP economic bargain, e.g., you know, the government gives you a legal monopoly in exchange for you investing to take risk to innovate. You know, without that, why would you ever invest? and take risks to innovate, right? Mm -hmm. And the main difference that I've found between, you know, how China does its IP and how the West does its IP is that China's IP ecosystem emerged in, in sort of a relative isolation. So there's a lingu linguistic barrier, cultural barriers, and, you know, a bunch of other barriers that, that, that kind of isolated them from the ideas of the West. And also they had the internet, right? So they, they basically were like, okay, how do we, what does IP look like when you can share ideas at the speed of light? And virality drives adoption. Virality drives commerce, right? And so the, the you know the, the Chinese IP ecosystem is is optimized for virality and figuring out how to monetize uh, an idea after it goes viral. And so you know the way I like to say is that you know in the West we have cat memes, in China they have phone memes, right? And so in the West people remix pictures of cats and they put funny captions on it technically and it's a copyright violation everyone when mm -hmm. they take a picture they get an inherent copyright to it and you're not allowed to just take someone's picture and reprint it and remix it you're supposed to get their permission but if you ever gave a pr uh, presentation with a meme in it and you've been asked to serve you know who do you attribute the photo to you just can't right the internet just took that photo and adopted it as its own and is now the internet's photo and and it's been stolen right it's just and, mm -hmm. and we accept that kind of stealing in the West, because it's funny and it's cute and, and we think it's harmless, right? Obviously, the photographer who took the photo gets no revenue from it. In China, because the barrier in the system is, is so structural and virality in hardware, and they've managed to reduce the barrier to production, and basically everyone there also has, you know, everyone in the hardware industry has the ability to produce and directly monetize their ideas. Ideas trade in a, in a similar fashion that people see kind of a hardware meme, 
they see a feature that they like, they can find the plans for it, they can sort of glom it into their system, and they can go ahead and produce and sell that. And the, the sort of the payback is that when they see that plan, that idea on the internet, a lot of times those plans, you know, call back to someone in the value chain, we have to buy a chip, a certain chip that is related to those plans. You have to buy a certain type of, you know, a molding process or a kind of plastic or a metal or whatever it is. And, and, and the people who sell those upstream components benefit greatly from the virality of the ideas. And so the ecosystem is, is more about trading ideas and driving, you know, the sale of, you know, certain core commodities rather than necessarily about, you know, someone creating this huge system with, you know, sort of obscure rules and patenting rounded corners and phones and claiming that, you know, this is innovation. In the U.S., there's been ongoing discussions about patent reform. Could you share us some thoughts about what you think needs to be needed in order to ensure a more fair system? There are so many, so, so many problems with the system right now. I can't even begin to enumerate them. Um, uh, you know, I've I've also filed many patents and been subject to patent suits, and so I, I've, my God. Uh, so, like, I think the one most obvious thing to me, particularly in the tech domain, is that patent terms are in a lifetime, like 20 years, roughly, for a patent lifetime. I mean, if you think 20 years ago what rare computers were, and to think that for those 20 years someone had exclusive right to produce an idea, it's you know, essentially it's an attorney in the technology world. Um, now, when when you go to like medical or drugs, you know those take twenty years to get to the market. That that makes sense. So, you know, somehow creating a system where you can get um, tiered or you know sort of a variety of of level production. And this has already been demonstrated, like in copyrights. Actually, there, there's one copyright that's extremely short term. It's called a mask work copyright, and it applies to chip mask work. So those things expire in a relatively short period of time. I, I, I forget what the exact number is, like 15 or 20 years or much shorter than the, like, the lifetime of a, you know, essentially of a copyright today. And, uh, and you, know, there was, you know, there was arguments around why that should be shorter because of you know, the way technology is. And you know, I think that, that kind of precedent can be applied to the patent system. Um, I also think the way prior art, um, the way it's searched and handled is particularly damaging to people in the open source community. People you know, the open source community doesn't realize, but by putting all their source out there, trolls can go ahead and look at the things that are out there, and thanks to the first to file system, they can patent ideas there that are well, well, well understood in the open source community, but are not traditionally searched by the patent office for prior art. So if you want to make a ton of money, you can go ahead and find a project that's shipping in a bunch of stuff, find a bunch of ideas, file like a ton of patents on the ideas because you're, you're first to file, the people invented it, doesn't matter. You get if if, you, if even a few of those allow, like maybe like ninety percent are denied. But if a few of those allow because they didn't search comprehensively the archives of you know open source where you know open source people discuss their things, um, then you can go ahead and start suing a bunch of people for for revenue, right? I mean, it's like that's the way the system is built right now. It's it's not built to handle the idea of like communities of people coming together, creating ideas and not having a huge amount of financial backing and not necessarily immediately trying to protect something for revenue return immediately. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of problems with the patents this day. I understand you were an early part of the SafeCast project here in Japan, um, the project for citizen science to aggregate information on ambient radiation. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your involvement and you know what were some of the challenges? Um, I would definitely say the challenges are almost always more about the networks of people 
and you know organizing groups to co- coordinate on things um, at least from my perspective because you know hardware design is my bread and butter most hardware design challenges I can like draw a list of things I have to do and assign times and actually execute all of them whereas when you need to <laughs> you know I need to find 20 people who can like collect radiation data and are willing to donate it and uh, that's you know I don't know it's like going fishing and you can't really you know defi- put a defined end date on these things or even you know more dif- difficulty is things like a lot of the regulatory concerns and you know how will the data appear you know in front of the, the, the nuclear regulatory committees will it have the impact that we want it to have can people abuse the data sets to like push special interests that are actually counter to the public good there's a lot of like very complicated things and then you mix all that up with the fact that people don't understand nuclear physics and there's like three types of radiation and each of them have a different biological significance extremely hard to like you know say you know is this place safe or not that's also, you know that's also a difficult thing to understand um that those were all the you know some of the most difficult gut-wrenching sort of questions we had to confront in, in trying to put together that project and open source in its role to engage citizen science do you see that growing oh yeah totally i mean i, I think i think it, you know, in the context of citizen science uh, open source is is i think directly enabling of it you know if if you have to if you say hey all the probes and measurement tools and standards are only available in this locked vault and you have to pay this guy to access them. You, you directly disable the crowd from participating in these things because you put a gatekeeper in the way. But if you can create sort of an open source mechanism where, you know, anyone with an immediate problem that's very relevant to their life um, can go ahead and expend their energy to solve these issues, you get a lot of return for, you know, for the amount of investment that you put into it. Finally, I wanted to get your thoughts on manufacturing. Um, do you see what the increase of 3D printers, AI, and robotics that manufacturing is going to become more decentralized? Well, you're talking about sort of like the you know sort of the fabrication, the digital fabrication revolution, that sort of thing. Right. I think there will be a decentralizing of some of the capabilities for sure, particularly if you want to look at things like mass customization or sort of um, last screw operations where, mm-hmm. you know, if you want a different case color or you want like some, uh, your name on the product or something like this, you know, some processes that can be made repeatable in it, you know, at the edge, right? But the, the thing is, is that to, to create something of the quality that people expect of a manufactured good, like just that, really shiny finish you get on all of like this consumer goods and all that sort of stuff. You literally have to handle the product with like kid gloves the entire way through the assembly process, right? And so the, the sort of moving the, the, you know, the manufacturing to the edge, a lot of the tolerances and a lot of the material properties that you can work with, with sort of these, you know, distributed manufacturing processes are somewhat limited. And, um, and, so far, it seems that you can sell products based almost solely on the finisher. I mean, you know, evidence the iPhone 7, and you're like, oh, we have this, whatever, the jet black. And they're, they're literally just selling the finish of the phone, right? And this is not, that that kind of look that people will pay a lot of money for is not something yet that has made its way into sort of the digital fabrication world. Digital fabrication allows you to do, you know, net shape and very functional and, and very useful. So if everyone's willing to sort of have the houses look like it was made in Minecraft, that would be fine, you know, and there's a certain group of people who would love that, right? But I think there's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, they, they want something that has a, 
higher quality finish or or you know uses exotic materials of some type and and uh, the knowledge and the equipment to deal with those is not easy to sort of you know bring out to the edge you know those tend to have an economy of scale um, the experience of working with that material accumulates and the people get better with it and that sort of artisan level craftsmanship is reflected ultimately into the quality of the product and I think that it's a while off until we can find a way to sort of figure out how to implant that artisan level kind of craftsmanship everywhere in a, in a uniform fashion. Actually, one last question. I know you've been involved with uh, STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, your venture, Chibitronics, was partly to help kids learn more about these concepts. Recently, there's been a movement towards STEAM, uh, science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. So how important do you think art should be as part of the educational system? Yeah, I mean, Chibitronics is actually directly more of a STEAM project because we very much, we weave an artistic aspect into the engineering aspects. We, we put them together. And the reason for this is, is very simple. It's like, the problem is, is when you measure achievement on a single axis, like, you know, you know, how well can you uh, solve these equations or how well can you draw a, a figure, right? The achievement tends to, you get a diminishing population towards the extremes, right? And so you only, you, you, it's, a, it's an exclusive process. People feel not included into that activity if they're not, and um, you know, naturally gifted towards it. But when you blend multiple disciplines together, like art and engineering, you have a, a much bigger solution space of possibly good outcomes. And um, one of the goals of, you know, my personal goals in doing Chibitronics is that I want to make sure that everyone feels that technology is for them. Even if they're not a technologist, even if they're not an engineer, say they're very strong in arts or crafts, they should still feel that technology is for them in a way, right? And by actually weaving art and engineering together into a substrate and creating a curriculum around it, um, my hope is that people will not feel that technology, technology is a black box because the, the ultimate sort of hazard that I worry about is that if we start to believe as a society that technology is magic, right? And, and you know, those, those statements about how, like, anything, you know, sufficiently advanced looks like magic or whatever, I forget what the exact quote is, then you all of a sudden start to have, like, magicians and priests and, and, and these sorts of, almost a religion, you know, a belief system around technology that is not bounded, it's not founded in, in logic. And then technology sort of then becomes a way to control people. I don't like the outcome. I want people to be in control of technology. Ultimately, everyone should be like, no, I, yeah, I don't program for a living, but I, it's, I, I did it one day, you know, in this one class, of, and we were, you know, drawing figures and making lights flash on them, and it was, it was easy. Like, you know, I could do it if I really had to, but like, you know, I'm not afraid of this stuff. I understand that humans make technology. It's not made by gods. It's not delivered by you know, some some genius on a hill or something. It's just, you know, we all have different interests, and my interest is not that, but I, you know, I respect your interests, and you should respect my interests as well, and, and, and we should all get along. Um, that's that's kind of the conversation I want people to be able to have and to really believe and be able to assert their rights by creating this more inclusive form of technology education through STEAM at the end of the day. Bunny, thank you so much again for joining us here on Grok Science. Sure. So it was a great time. Thanks. Uh, we were just talking with Dr. Bunny Huang on hacking the open source movement and STEAM education. He's the author of The Hardware Hacker, Adventures in Making and Breaking Hardware. 
and hacking the Xbox. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music.